Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Well, my guess is that every listener is already well acquainted with what's going on in Afghanistan this week. The United States is withdrawing after a 20-year presence there following 9-11 in 2001. Now, on Monday of this week, we began to see horrific scenes from the airport in Kabul, specifically that airplane, the United States Air Force airplane that was departing, and there was just a sea of Afghan men running down the runway trying to grab hold of the airplane and trying to escape with those U.S. forces as they were leaving. And of course, as the week has progressed, we've just continued to see really heartbreaking and violent scenes from the streets of Kabul and throughout Afghanistan, especially there at the airport. People are so desperate to get away. People are even passing their children forward, passing babies forward today, a scene of a baby being passed over the wall from an Afghan crowd to a United States soldier. There's women at the fences at the airport just screaming at the U.S. forces to please let them escape the country. So we here in the United States, we are watching these scenes unfold. We're seeing them on social media and on media outlets, and we are reeling over this. The scenes are awful, and they are very difficult to process. So heavy on my heart, especially this past week, have been two specific communities that I'm somewhat a part of, and have. Um, I know these communities are especially heartbroken, and I've been speaking at length each day with members of each community. There are two communities that I have deep ties with. Now, one is the missions community, those who are over overseas workers and who carry the gospel and plant churches throughout the throughout the globe, um, dear friends who have served in Afghanistan, and then the other communities, the military community, having been in ministry for over 10 years to men and women in uniform and their families. And I've just been texting and talking with so many friends from both of those fields, and they are heartbroken. For people my age, we I'm in my early 40s, for people my age, we became adults right as 9-11 happened. So those, those of us who are involved in missions, specifically in hard places like in the 1040 window um, in Afghanistan. And then those of us involved in the military, we have you know um, committed entire careers to efforts going on in Afghanistan, especially for our friends who are in the military. They have spent their whole career or their families have spent now two decades seeking and securing peace in Afghanistan. So those who have been in missions and those who are in the military have poured their lives into bringing peace and healing and bringing the gospel to Afghanistan. So to see that seemingly unravel over this past week has just been incredibly heartbreaking, discouraging. It's been a punch to the gut. So many say, you know, it feels like because of the the scenes that are coming out of this country and the headlines that are so sort of final and um, inflammatory and incredibly discouraging. It feels like all is lost. It feels like everything we did, the career that we committed, the the ways that we sacrificed, the people that we sacrificed, the family time that we gave up, the violence that we endured, that it feels like it was all in vain, that maybe we paid that high cost really for no reason. So my point on this episode of All Things is to do a couple things. First, I do want to just dig into a few things that I have learned. Over this past week, I've done a deep dive into reading just numerous articles, listening to tons of podcasts, really trying to understand what those who have been in in Afghanistan over the last couple decades, those who are well acquainted with the history of Afghanistan, the history of Taliban, um, all the global relationships that are happening in this area, as, as I have done that deep dive 
I have learned some things that I was unaware of before they surface, things that you're not getting from the headlines, things that you're not necessarily getting from a quick take on social media. Now, I am I am far from an expert, but I am someone who loves to dig and dig and research. And so there's there are some things that I want to share with you that I have learned from analysts and journalists over the past week, things that were surprising to me that I think might be surprising to you, my listeners as well. But my goal on this specific podcast is not really to take that political deep dive. Again, I'm far from an expert. I do think some bullet points will be really helpful. They'll help um, sort of give some background to the headlines that we're seeing and to the photos that that are coming across social media. But I want this episode also to really be a chance for my friends in missions and in the military and the surrounding communities to be able to process what we're seeing this past week, that we can use our biblical lens, a gospel lens to look at what's been going on, what's been unfolding in Afghanistan. Where is our hope? Where do we turn when we see history unravel like that? I think it's especially important for these two communities who've given of themselves over the last two decades, and not just to missionaries and to those who are in the military, but also just to Christians who are concerned about the globe, who are concerned about global events, and who are especially concerned about the church around the world. Now, before I go on, let me just say... Obviously, the plight of Afghans is what matters most. You know, that is the story that should be told. I thank God for those who are on the ground in Kabul and throughout Afghanistan who are able to record either video or audio or write down interviews, who are able to capture what's going on to Afghan citizens, to various tribes, to what's happening on the ground. That is the story that should be centered and should be spotlighted. They should that should be of utmost priority as we're thinking about what's going on this week, is what is happening to the Afghan people. But that's not who I'm centering in this particular episode because my immediate community is those who are in missions and those who are in the military. Those are my real friends in real life. That's my community. That's my siblings in the Lord. And so I want to speak to the community that I know, to those who are reeling. And so my my goal here is not necessarily to sort of deprioritize um, how Afghans are processing this, but to speak into the community that I know, the community that I've been talking with and praying with and hearing from all week. So let's go ahead and dive in after those few introductory comments here. I think the first thing that so many of us are saying, I mean, our mouths are dropped open and we're looking at each other going, how could this have happened? We've invested 20 years. How could it come toppling down so quickly? And there are many ways to answer that question, but I think it's important to note first and foremost that this was a war that has been fought at the hands of four presidents, two Republican and two Democrat. So we can't really put the blame all on one president or another. I think all four bear some responsibility here. All four have had some successes and some missteps, some larger than others, but we've just got to be honest and say, you know what? Four administrations have played a role here. Now, I think recently a major fail of the Trump administration is that he thought it was valid to negotiate with the Taliban, that the Trump administration sent an envoy, mind you, without the Afghan government involved. So the the Trump administration sent an envoy to negotiate and sit down with the Taliban. I don't think negotiating with the Taliban was wise. And I think it was really unwise. And analysts and experts are saying that to leave the Afghan government out of that conversation was really unhelpful. So the United States and the Taliban sat down to chat. They agreed on some things. And the U.S. said, 
okay, Afghan government, go ahead and carry out what our envoy has established. So leaving the Afghan government outside of that conversation was unhelpful. Now, you probably know by now that President Trump established a May 1st deadline. So May 1st of this year, Trump said all American troops would withdraw from Afghanistan. Well, President Biden says, you know, he inherited this negotiation, this diplomatic agreement. And for some reason, President Biden feels compelled to follow through on Trump's work here, which is fairly inconsistent. But nevertheless, he says, I inherited this and I have to follow through. I can't meet the May 1st deadline, but we're going to meet a deadline. What he said initially was a deadline of 9-11, which... Many who are watching this closely felt like that was a really strange and even dark and weird deadline to aim for that exactly 20 years later would be Biden's deadline for a troop withdrawal. So I think a major fail of the Biden presidency has been his commitment to sticking through, sticking to this withdrawal. You know, the, a date was set and the um, Biden administration has said, you know, here's the date we've got to make it happen rather than the other way around. Now in February of this year, an Afghan study group created by Congress said the most important thing to ensure that a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops is based not on an inflexible timeline, but on all parties fulfilling their commitments. So this group created by the United States Congress said, do not create an inflexible deadline. Instead, see that all parties come to the table and fulfill their agreements. And once agreements are fulfilled, then set the deadline. But we've gone around it the other, we've gone about it around it backwards. So all four administrations, I think we can all say safely that all four administrations have underestimated the long view, the long game of the Taliban and of Al-Qaeda. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda have a 1,000-year-long history that they love and that they are familiar with and that they are committed to. They have a strong and unified view of themselves as a people group and their place in the world. So a 20-year speed bump in the span of a 1,000 years really is nothing to them. But for us in American culture, in Western culture, 20 years feels awful. 20 years feels like everything. We are a people who want to see quick and tangible and really permanent, long-lasting changes from our very brief efforts. But experts will tell you, analysts will tell you, this is just not realistic in the Afghanistan context to merely put in 20 years of work and expect changes for the long haul. You're just not going to get that amongst a people group who have an identity that is a thousand years long. Something else I would love to address is how much blame has been cast on the Afghan government and military. So many of us are saying, why did they surrender so quickly? Why did the Afghan military flee? Why didn't they dig in and fight like we did? And I think these are, you know, these are questions that are coming from a place of confusion, a place of discouragement. We say, you know, we trained them, we equipped them, we resourced them for 20 years. They should have kept up the good fight. But the reality is for 20 years, they have fought alongside us. They have fought with us. And that difference makes everything. So I'm going to attach in the show notes so many articles, articles that are genuine written by experts, articles that are by analysts and journalists who know what they're talking about. I'm going to attach all of those in the show notes. They're the places that I've gone to um, do my research, and I, I invite you to do it too. But I want to attach a um, article 
wherein an Afghan Air Force pilot is interviewed, and he describes what has been taking place this week and um, even prior to this week. And you can just hear his love for the United States, his deep gratitude for all the training and the equipment that he has received, his pride in fighting. So I want to just actually read a couple paragraphs from that article. And this is the voice of that Afghan Afghanistan Air Force pilot. This is what he says, and I'm quoting him here. Many Afghan soldiers died bravely. I've been fighting for over 15 years. We did not all just give up and quit. Yes, some did. Once the Americans left, we weren't ready to start doing all the logistics. The logistics, the maintenance, and corruption really hurt us. I know people in the U.S. are upset that we didn't fight longer, but we've been fighting for decades, and some of us even longer. When the U.S. left, it really affected morale, especially how quickly it happened. We woke up one day, and then Bagram was gone. Everyone got scared. It got out of control. I'm mad at many of the senior leaders who lined their pockets and simply vanished from the country. However, thousands of Afghan officers were not responsible for that. We were simply doing the best we could. There are a lot of Afghans who trusted the United States, not just translators, not just civil society activists, but also Afghan soldiers. We loved fighting alongside Americans. Please don't leave us behind. Please. We will be great Americans. Now, this particular pilot has seven children and a wife, and he has had to flee the Taliban. He and his colleagues are in hiding, and he and his fellow pilots expect to be killed as soon as they are found. So to kind of summarize this, Mindy Bells, who is a senior editor for World Magazine, I love her work. I always go to her as an expert in this particular field. She has spent much of the last two decades in Afghanistan and surrounding um, the surrounding region. And she says, basically, we crippled the Afghan military by pulling out when we asked them to defend ourselves. She says one Afghan leader put it this way, we put too much pressure on the Afghan government and gave too much respect to the Taliban. So things like corruption, things like an inability to maintain and go forward with the resources and the training and the opportunities that have been afforded to the Afghan military at the hands of the United States, they just they've been fighting alongside us not without us. And they weren't ready for this moment. And when the U.S. left, then morale fell and there was corruption at every level. And so there was just an, an, a decision by people like this man. We can't go on alone. We have to go into hiding. So Biden has been maintaining this week that the chaos that we're now seeing was inevitable. But even as we have begun to draw down our troops and prepare to leave Afghanistan altogether, um, just as recently as May, so a few months ago, the Defense Department released a report saying that the first three months of 2021, so they analyzed the first three months of this year, and the Defense Department said at that time in May, the Taliban had increased its attacks against Afghanistan government forces during this period, and it appears to be preparing with al-Qaeda for large-scale offenses. The Defense Department said the Taliban initiated 37% more attacks in that first quarter than during the same period in 2020. According to Defense Intelligence Agency, the Taliban maintained close ties with al-Qaeda and was very likely preparing for large-scale offensive attacks against population centers and Afghan government installations. So clearly a huge heads up from the Defense Department in May. Now just today, just even a few hours ago, the Wall Street 
Journal reported that officials serving in the embassy in Kabul sent a memo to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and other State Department officials warning of the potential collapse of Kabul soon after the August 31st troop withdrawal deadline. This particular report warned of rapid gains by the Taliban, a potential collapse of Afghan forces, and the report offered ways to mitigate this crisis and ways to speed evacuation efforts. So bottom line, the Taliban and al-Qaeda are reunited. They have taken over Afghanistan. They are ramping up their efforts. All the while, we are drawing back. They are drawing up and we are drawing out. So, um, you know, this is really perplexing. Um, It feels very discouraging, very disheartening, really heartbreaking that this withdrawal is full steam ahead. And, um, And the reality is it could have gone down differently. As of today, as I'm recording this, it is believed that 10,000 Americans are still in Afghanistan. And I read a number tonight that um, it's likely there are 100,000 people, including both Americans and Afghan allies, um, who are now in Taliban-controlled territories who should be evacuated. So, um, you know, that's 10,000 Americans, as well as, you know, tens of thousands of Afghan allies who've served as translators or security forces or have served alongside American efforts in other ways. Um, So we have a long way to go. We made huge promises to evacuate these people groups, and now they they cannot get out. So the United States, as of yesterday, has been advising both Americans and Afghan allies to shelter in place. The United States government has said, you know, the Taliban now controls the country. The United States cannot guarantee safe passage for you to the airport. So speaking of airports, you know, those awful um, images came out on Monday from the airport in Kabul. Well, the United States had an airbase, Bagram Airbase, that we closed just last month. Bagram could have been used for an evacuation effort, but instead we closed down Bagram as we've been closing everything down. And so then we had to forcibly take over the Kabul airport earlier this week so that we could use it for these evacuation um, efforts. So if you can just imagine the airport in your city being taken over. So anybody who had tickets in and out of the airport can no longer use them. Nobody can safely go in and out of this airport now. Um, And that's part of the problem is that Afghan allies, people who had special issue visas, those who had been guaranteed evacuation by the United States, they had purchased commercial airplane tickets and had planned on leaving even this week. But now, even with those visas, even with that paperwork, even with purchased airplane tickets, they cannot even get into the Kabul airport. And the Taliban controls the country, the Taliban controls the perimeter of the airport, and there's no way in. So we're now relying on the Taliban to let Americans and Afghan allies, those Afghans who have gone against the Taliban, to let them into the airport so that these people can evacuate. And it boggles the mind that Bagram Air Base was not, did not remain open we could be avoiding the tragic scenes that we're seeing now had we left Bagram open. 
So one thing that has been um, especially enlightening to me as I have taken this deep dive this week, and honestly something that has felt sort of discouraging, but something that I, I did not, I was not really aware of, is that in recent years, it really has not been very costly for the United States to remain in Afghanistan. So um, of course we had Obama's troop surge just a few years ago, and of course the financial cost of being there over two decades is exorbitant. Um, the cost of everything is relative, of course. But what has been eye-opening to me is that since January of this year, January of 2021, we have only had 2,500 troops on the ground in Afghanistan, 2,500 troops on the ground. So very few American troops. Now, of course, they've been working in conjunction and alongside contractors, diplomats, embassy staff, analysts, security advisors, you know, all, um, a number of uh, people that have made up this huge support network in the, in the American compounds and in the places of power throughout the country, but not a ton of troops. So um, the reality is that the recent cost has been relatively low. So over the 20 years, we have been able to create and maintain peace. And then the cost of maintaining that peace has been quite low, especially since um, the beginning of this year, but especially over the last couple of years. So um, one thing that was interesting to me is that after um, over the last 18 months, up to two years, I'm not sure what the exact date is, I've read both, but over the last 18 months or two years, we have had zero American deaths, zero deaths of American troops in the last 18 months. We've seen a, st a ton of stability and a ton of peace. Um, over the last 20 years, the human toll in general has not been great. Now, let me be very clear. Every life lost is grave. And of course, we have friends of friends who passed away um, in Afghanistan, and that is absolutely tragic. I don't mean to discount it at all. But in 20 years, just over 2,300 American service members' lives have been lost. So in 20 years, 2,300. And that's strikingly fewer American combat deaths in Afghanistan than the total number of civilians killed on 9-11 itself. So we lost more civilians on 9-11 here on American soil than we've lost in 20 years in Afghanistan. And amazingly, since 2014, only 66 American combat troops have died since 2014. So again, those losses are tragic. I don't mean to downplay them at all, but that cost is low compared to the amazing good that has been accomplished. That's a, a low cost um, for maintaining uh, and keeping the stability and the peace that had been brought to a tumultuous and an unstable context. And of course, in my conversations with those who are in the military and those who are married to men in the military, women in the military, their feeling is, at that cost, we'd much rather stay than see a withdrawal like this. We would have much rather stay. Okay, well, this is the question I want to get to next is what good came from the last 20 years? I know that so many of us are going, why were we even there? Did we even make a dent? What was it even worth it? And the reality is we hear so much bad news. You know, that's what really fear and bad news really is what sells media. It's what sells headlines and newspapers. But so much good happened over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. Um, and the conversations that I've had with various missionaries and people who work with NGOs there and people in the military, as well as just the stats that are coming out of the country over the last 20 years have been really encouraging and amazing to me because I don't think we spend enough time really dwelling on this. So of course, healthcare 
vastly improved over the last 20 years that we were there. In fact, during the 20 years that we were there, the life expectancy for Afghans increased by 20 years. So 20 years has been added to the lives of of the average Afghan. There's been a sharp decline in infant mortality. Nearly 100,000 Afghan children per year who previously would have died now do not die. So amazing decline in infant mortality, amazing incline in life expectancy. Nearly, um, let's see, literacy rates for Afghans 15 and older have increased from 31% to 43%, so many more people reading. The USAID reports that student enrollment grew from just 900,000 male students to more than 9.5 million students, 39% of whom were girls in 2020, in just about every way measurable. The quality of life in Afghanistan vastly improved over the last 20 years. Now further, missionaries, those who have been on the ground working either in healthcare or just sharing the gospel, various ways that NGOs have been at work there, missionaries say they, over the last 20 years, have been able to establish a gospel witness. So many Afghans heard the gospel. Now, of course, one friend said, was very clear. She said, you know, it wasn't easy to be there, but it was definitely so much easier to be there with the American military on the ground. There was, um, we had a way in, we were able to work in hospitals. We were able to work in education. We were able to open schools. We were able to share the gospel and to plant churches and to sort of make a move over the last 20 years that was only possible because of the presence of troops and the stability and the peace that was created by the troops that were there for the last 20 years. Now, most Christians in Afghanistan are under the age of 40, and they have converted to Christianity from Islam. The Afghan church is now one of the fastest growing churches in the world. It is teeny. It's maybe a couple thousand believers, but it is replicating quickly because Afghans are looking for hope. Mindy Bells, who I uh, mentioned earlier and just cannot thank enough for her work, she re- she's the senior a senior editor at World, but she shares a story about ch- church elders. So we're talking about basically young men who've converted to Christ, changing their national ID cards, the religious affiliation on their national ID cards. Now that religious affiliation is traditionally passed from the father to son, and that's how families get their religious identity. But these church elders had gone to the sort of extreme um, taking the extreme step of changing their religious ID on those cards over the last 20 years so that now it says Christian and they would be able to pass on that Christian identity to their children. Of course, since that is now in the system, the Taliban are more easily, um, easily able to identify who the Christians are, are in the country. Um, but we're talking about a church that is tenacious and that is replicating. So this gospel proclamation and this gospel witness that went forward over the last two decades cannot be underestimated. Such good spiritual fruit has grown in a country that has been difficult, that has been rocky soil, that has been closed to the gospel. So I cannot say enough on this episode, a huge thank you to our military. Your military efforts were not in vain. For missionaries, for healthcare workers, for Afghans who've come to the United States and those who remain in hiding there, the message is unanimous. Thank you. The quality of life was hugely improved. An entire generation 
grew up in safety and stability. Girls studied alongside boys. Women were able to go to college and they received advanced degrees alongside men. Violence decreased. And so really three generations, you know, the one that grew up and those before them, they experienced two decades of peace. And we cannot underestimate just the eternal significance of that. Human souls are eternal. And the United States military and our allies should be proud of investing in that which is eternal. You kept evil at bay. You kept terrorism from flourishing. You kept the Taliban and Al-Qaeda from partnering and from running over their country. You kept the United States safe from an act of terrorism over the last two decades. You allowed relative safety for the countries that neighbor Afghanistan. And you provided really a global safety. The whole world benefited from the peace and stability that was wrought in Afghanistan over the last two decades. Now, I know from my conversations that some service members feel angry, embarrassed, ashamed, overwhelmed with sadness because it feels like all was lost. But friends, that is not true. Both Afghans who remain in their country and Afghans who have relocated to the United States and throughout the rest of the world, they now have two decades to point to of life that was safe, healthy, where their education increased, literacy increased, and many heard the truth about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. So do dwell on this goodness, friends. Let us dwell on the goodness that has transpired over the last two decades. Of course, our clumsy and chaotic exit this week is awful, and I understand the feeling that all is lost. And while that is not true, we cannot underestimate the goodness of the last 20 years. It is vital that we're honest with ourselves. I mean, we have to acknowledge things are going to change in Afghanistan, and it's going to, it already is for the worse. And not only are they going to change in Afghanistan, but they're going to change throughout the world. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda are back together. They're training, they're mobilizing, they're gaining ground. ISIS, of course, remains active. And there are violent Islamic extremists all over the globe who now see that the United States has a short attention span. And we will not necessarily live up to our commitment to a people group and to our allies and to those who have helped us. In the final analysis, I think the United States is going to be seen as weak, impatient, untrustworthy, and terrorism will gain new life. There there will be a flourishing of terrorism again in a way that hasn't been globally allowed for 20 years. And of course, our relationships with our allies are going to be strained. Not much is being said here in the United States in our press, but the way we're handling our exit from Afghanistan is reportedly putting a huge strain on our relationship with the UK. So there are just going to be huge ramifications from this clumsy and chaotic exit. Now, of course, the question is what's going to happen to Afghans? The Taliban has said um, to the Biden administration and has said publicly that they're going to be gentler, that they're going to be more inclusive, that they're going to be more equitable when it comes to women and girls. This is what they have stated. And while this is what they say, reports on the ground really differ. Reports on the ground, reports from across the country is that Afghans who have worked with the United States, Afghans who are Christians, and of course, women and girls who are unmarried between the ages of 15 and 45 are especially vulnerable. We're already hearing reports from all over the country that the Taliban is walking the streets. They're going door to door. They're calling people out of their homes. They're identifying if they were allied with the United States, if they're Christians, if they're unmarried girls or women, and they're abducting them in some cases they're killing them on the spot. Schools are closed. And of course, the Taliban has taken over buildings. They've taken vehicles and equipment from NGOs, from the government. 
um, the, the, the situ- reality on the ground is just incredibly grave. There's just incredible danger with the Taliban in control. They know the streets are impassable. They have seized vehicles and equipment. The airport's impossible to get to those who remain, you know, as of tonight, reading a hundred thousand, um, Americans and allies who remain, they are in imminent and grave danger. And some are staying, you know, one um, friend told me about an NGO that is staying. And, and we know that we know there are some, um, workers who are going to stay and we need to be mindful of them and prayerful um, for their efforts. So I know the question everybody is asking, well, what can we do? What can we do now that, you know, this is our situation? What can I do about it other than wring my hands and say that I don't like it? I think one of the things we as followers of Jesus need to do um, on a foundational level is we need to think rightly. When we don't know what to think, we've got to return to what we do know. So when we feel at a loss, we've got to return to what we know. And what we know is that God is sovereign over the nations. Psalm 46 says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Daniel chapter 2 says, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Romans 13 says, for there is no authority except God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And of course, Acts chapter 17, a favorite of mine, if you've heard this podcast before, you've probably heard me say that where and when we live is not a mistake. God was very uh, specific in putting you and me and everybody else on the globe exactly where and when he put us. So friends, we are not God. We cannot establish kingdoms. We cannot bring healing ultimately. Only God can. And it can be very depressing and very discouraging for us to see, especially those who are workers on the ground, to see that they were only able to alleviate some suffering or to bring some help when only a fraction of people were served when there are so many more dying and who need help. But the reality is we are human. We are finite. We are not omnipotent like our God is. The truth is we are Christ's ambassadors. So while we are not God, we are his ambassadors. And so we must steward this moment. We must be good stewards of um, our context, our skills, our gifts, and the calling that God has given us. So for example, for those in the military, that means serving unto the Lord. For those who are missionaries, that means serving unto the Lord. We tend to want to serve unto a result. We want to serve unto an outcome according to our own human perception and our own human wisdom. We tend to want to say, I'm going to serve this situation so long as it bears certain fruit. But again, that puts us in the seat of the sovereign. We are not God. We are merely Christ's ambassadors. And so we serve Jesus. We use our skills, our gifts, our callings, our resources, our context to serve him. And um, that really, that perspective really does change everything. Things um, that really can make the difference between feeling incredibly discouraged and depressed that you didn't achieve a certain benchmark um, and acknowledging, you know, God is the one who is on the throne. I will serve him, but the results are up to him. Only he can bring about the results. We see a small dent and it feels very sad. But when you remember that you serve the King of Kings who is on his throne, then you can play your role with confidence and with peace and allow God to do what he will. Further, you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. Life is brief, and you and I have one opportunity on this side of heaven to preach Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. You know, so much 
in Afghanistan felt guaranteed just a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, a couple years ago. Um, the you know missionaries who were on the ground, workers on the ground, militaries on the ground felt like you know this is a new era, this is sort of permanent, this is how we're going to stay. But in the blink of an eye, that all has passed away. So this is a reminder that life is brief and that time is short. And so it's serving as a reminder and an exhortation to me. And I want to spur you on. You know what are you doing now? What has God called you to? What are you waiting for? Because we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We do not know what will come about tomorrow. So what is keeping you or keeping me from obeying God right here, right now? What is keeping us from going and serving, taking a step of faith? You know, kingdoms fall and nations wane, but God and his word and human souls are eternal. We are moving toward the new heaven and the new earth. Christ reigns now and he is coming back. So my question for you, Christian, is are you spending your life on behalf of what matters? And of course, we can pray. I know that so often we feel like, well, I, I'm just praying, but prayer is essential. You know, Ephesians chapter six says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now I'm going to attach a prayer guide to this um, podcast. In fact, our church, Redemption Parker, is going to gather to pray early Friday, Friday morning. And so I encourage you to gather with your family, with your church, with your people, and pray to the Lord on behalf of our siblings, on behalf of the brotherhood who lives on the other side of the globe. Our siblings in Christ, um, Afghans need wisdom, boldness, perseverance, courage to stand firm. They need safety. They um, need to be able to discern misinformation. We need to be praying that the church will show up around the globe and help serve refugees as they flee. We've got to be praying for the vacuum that's left behind as workers and Christians flee the country. And of course, you know, praying for help with grief and violence and praying against fear for those who stay, praying for the Taliban, praying for Al-Qaeda, praying that they would repent and believe they are not beyond God's grasp. But friends, we must commit to praying for our siblings who are suffering. Suffering. We there we can in some ways even take action. We can advocate politically. We can support financially, and we can even show up to support refugees. World Relief is a great organization. I will attach them in the show notes. But their World Relief can help you identify who your Congress members are, and you can write letters. You can advocate politically for refugees. If you're not sure what you think about immigration and refugees, I want to point you to All Things Episode 57 about refugees and All Things Episode 52 about immigration. But you can advocate politically and you can support financially. But also you can just show up for refugees. Refugees are pouring in from Afghanistan into our country. You can seek out the agencies in your community, the refugee resettlement agencies right in there in your city, and you can contact them to see how you can help. All of them need help with things like um, school supplies for kids as they show up, clothing, shoes, toiletries. They need finances to help these refugees 
families pay for rent. They need mentors for the families, helping them to teach English if they don't yet know English, helping them to shop in the grocery store, to find a bank, to find a doctor, how to conduct themselves in an American education setting. I mean, the the list goes on and on. As somebody who has lived overseas as an immigrant, I can't tell you how valuable it is to have a friend meet you on the ground and show you how to live and conduct your life in the country that you've been, um, that you have moved to. You can um, do a drive at your church to raise money or to raise donations and take them to these um, resettlement agencies. Uh, one friend was telling me that she just looked up a um, you know various activities that an a club that ministers to Afghans, an Afghan club, what they were doing. It was things like cooking classes, English classes, math tutoring. And so she just went and she goes to those activities and she forms relationships with men and women, boys and girls who have fled Afghanistan. And then she forms a relationship with them and she is ready to share the good news of Christ in a moment like this when they are really reeling and suffering and grieving. She is able to point them then to the Prince of Peace. She's able to mourn with those who mourn and then point them to ultimate hope, the ultimate hope that we have in Christ. These are hard days indeed. I know myself and so many of my loved ones have just felt very sad this week to see the events unfolding. And it's important that we are informed politically, that we use our voices, our votes, that we write letters and we advocate that we hold our government accountable for the blunders of this week. We should really insist that every American and every Afghan who served alongside us is rescued and that no one is left behind. Taking action is vital and we should as far as we are able and called. But let's also remember other things like remembering what's true, thinking rightly, um, thanking God and thanking our military for holding evil at bay for 20 years. This was good and right. Those efforts were good and right, and we should not underestimate that. There's so much to be proud of when it comes to our military. But also, we are not sovereign. We are not God. We are mere ambassadors. So as an ambassador of Christ, as his follower, what is it that you're doing right now to care for the hurting, to care for the marginalized? How might you pray? How might you act? How might you move toward the refugee community in this moment? For those of you with heavy hearts, my heart goes out to you. Mine is heavy as well. But let us turn to God. He knows. He sees. He is sovereign. When you don't know what to think, go back to what you do know. And that is that our God is strong and able. He is kind and good. And he reigns. We can trust him with this moment. Thank you, friends, for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.